0: Hey, good morning, if, if you're able to remain standing, um, would love to have us um, read or have me read the, the passage this morning to us. Um, the reference will be on the screens, we won't have the verses there, um, but listen as I read, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Here's what God's word says. It says you who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him you know what he wants you know what is right because you've been taught his law you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if you, the Gentiles, obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you. Hopefully you're doing well today. It's always a privilege and honor to be in the house of the Lord. It's always an honor to be able to preach and open up God's word to his people. Um, My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, if you're joining us today, we're just glad glad you're here. We would love to meet you. And if you're watching online, um, wherever you're watching today, we're glad that you're joining in. Um, you know, before we jump into the passage, just want to give, give a little family news, uh, just a reminder that next week we are going to be kicking off starting our 815 service, um, and which is a great thing because, because what we're trying to do um, with having a third service is to create space. And just want to keep putting out there to, to those of us here and we'll say the same thing at eleven is just just to be prayerfully considering what what if God were to have you kind of have this take this missional move to eight fifteen and really the heartbeat around that is just is to create space so that those who the Lord does bring um, just have have a seat, have have room. You know, sometimes when you walk into a big space, and I know some of us feel it too, you walk into a big room and you're like, where do I sit? Where do I go? There could be these kind of subconscious thoughts of, Man, I don't know if there's space for me here. And, and so what we're trying to do is just create more space for people that as we invite, as we, as we continue to see what God does, we, we're, we're, we're ready. We're ready. And so just, just know that that starts next week. Hey, I'd love to pray really quick, and then we'll, we're going to jump in today. If you would bow with me. Lord, thank you again for a moment like this. Pray that you'd speak to us. Pray that you would guide our hearts, our thoughts. Would you make this space a sacred space where, where when we're in your word, that we, we trust it's your voice to us. Pray that you'd challenge us, convict us, encourage us, guide us, all those things. And we want you to be glorified. We want your words to be heard today. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I wanna to start today by um, kind of pointing our, our minds to a parable that Jesus told. And it's probably a familiar parable to, to many of us. It's in Luke chapter 18. Just kind of make a note if you're, if you're taking notes. But in Luke chapter 18, he What he does is he he describes these two men. And the parable goes like this, that two men went to the temple to pray. And one of the men was a Pharisee, and one of the men was a tax collector. And you may be familiar with the story, and what Jesus is doing is he's he's using this parable to speak against self-righteousness. And he goes on to describe the way these two men pray. And he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. And you, those of us listening can already be like, oh, that just kind of makes me cringe. It's kind of sad. And you, and you start to think about that. Pharisee praying that way and you go who's who's he really praying to who's he really talking about um, he's praying to God but he's worshiping who himself and the parable goes on he says now the, the tax collector Jesus says he prays and he he stands at a distance and he dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. And who of the two men exhibits the posture or prayed in the way that God desired? And we know and Jesus says, I tell you this sinner, this tax collector, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. This passage, I believe, captures well the heart of the passage that we're in today in Romans chapter 2, where, where Paul, he zeroes in on the self-righteous attitude and posture that was encircling the Jewish people. And you can see in the parable that there is a danger that can flow from our goodness, that we can begin to find our self-worth from our morality, or we can... We can we can pursue religiosity and, and being good for so long and, and even be really successful at it that we lose sight of our need for God. And when we focus so much on the externals of how am I doing, how am I behaving, how am I looking, that it not only focuses our eyes on ourselves, but it even starts to help our, focus our eyes on others. And what it does is it starts to, to bring in this Pride. Where he's like, I'm better than that person. I'm good. At least I'm not them. And it disregards all the junk that we have in our hearts. And the danger is that then, what happens is that it becomes a worship of our goodness. That we begin to then worship ourselves because we save ourselves. At least we think. That's the way we operate when we when we emphasize and put our trust in and rely in our good works. There's a quote I found from the, greatish, the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He says this. He says, The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. So if we're looking to ourselves, who are we then not looking to? If we're looking to ourselves, who are we by implication then rejecting? And I don't know about you, But me relying on me to save me is a disaster for me. And I know that. And yet, because of the bent of my heart, the brokenness of my heart, the sin that pervades my heart, I'm still prone to do it, to trust in myself. And I would just say, here's a sobering reality for those of us in this room, is that we live in a society and in a culture of goodness. Living in South Charlotte, in the heart of the Bible Belt, where everyone is religious, there's churches on every corner. Most of us were familiar with church or with Christian vernacular. Moralism pervades our society. A common description that we use of people is she's a good kid, or he's a good person. Most of us, it's not too hard for us to get to the end of our day, to lay in our bed and be like, that was a good day. I've done a lot of good. I, I'm living the right way. And again, the, I, I think in some ways we can, but if we trust in it and we re- rely on it, we're missing something. And here's the reality, is that, there's, there, that no one is good but God. And that's the, that's, that's the bad news that we're talking about. Or, I'm sorry, that's good news, because <laughs> God's good. <laughs> the bad news is that we are not good in and of ourselves. And since God is the only one who is good, none of us can truly claim it. We can't truly say that of ourselves. If we're really honest, then look at our hearts. And again, as Paul is setting the stage for us in these first three chapters Where we continue to know that in order for us to know how good the good news is, we need to know how bad the bad news is. And Paul is setting the stage so that we can see the beauty of the gospel. But as he he starts this book, he he brings in this bad news of brokenness. And in chapter one, he, he directs us first to the sin and the pervasiveness of idolatry in the world. And he directs our eyes to look at those who are far from God, to those who do not know God, to the outsiders or the Gentiles. And, and it's almost like he's bringing up a window to us. And he's saying, hey, look, look through this window and look at the world and see, see the wickedness of those who, 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 who can say, can, can, can know God. And yet they suppress the truth of God with their lives. That they take the things that the creator made, and they worship those things. And he's pointing us out there to see the wickedness and and, and those that say that they're not giving thanks to God. They claim to be wise, but instead they're lost. And this way of living, it's like this illustration that somebody showed me that like when we suppress the truth of God, it's like trying to suppress a beach ball in water. Have you guys ever done that at the pool? You take a beach ball and you try to suppress it underwater you can do it. But man, the weight of it, it takes intentionality and yet oftentimes what we do, what the world does is even though we can see the invisible qualities of God and we have imprinted on us the truth of God the brokenness of our hearts and sin, what we do is we suppress the truth with our lives. We, we suppress it. And over time, we can get really creative creative at it. We can get really um, used to it maybe even. But eventually the truth does rise. And eventually we will be standing before the Lord. But he, he directs our eyes to this window. But now in chapter 2, it says, it's if Paul brings out a window with the first group, With the second group, the Jewish people, it's as if he brings out a mirror and he holds it up to them. In Romans chapter two, verse one, he says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse either. And we look in the mirror and we we realize that I am just as bad and I'm just as guilty. And that's what he's doing with the Jewish people. You can't just look out the window. You gotta look at the mirror. You're also sinners, you also do these things. And, And even though you're moral, and even though you've been given covenantal privileges, I mean, it's a, it was a special thing to be the people of God. It was a special thing to be given the law, the beautiful law. But being the recipients of the law doesn't bring any advantages if you don't obey the law. And to take it further, the Jewish people missed the whole point of the law, which was to the point them to God, which was to the point them to their need. It was to be a marker of their way of life, but it wasn't, it wasn't the way of life. It was to be the marker of how they should live within their freedom, but it wasn't the way they became the people. That was by God. And they allowed their pride to blind them to their need. And so that's the setup. In chapter one, Paul proves that the Gentiles are without excuse, and now in chapter two, Paul is also showing the Jews that they are also without excuse, and so here we are in chapter two, verse 17, where Paul says, you who call yourselves Jews, are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. And I just note the two verbs there. The problem is that you rely and you brag. You're relying on the wrong thing. You're relying on God's law, and in your your attempt to obey it And you're boasting about your special relationship with him. And and Paul, what he does is he begins to call out the Jewish people on their pride, on their arrogant perception of themselves, on their practice of the law or their lack thereof. And if anyone could challenge them, it was Paul. Paul, a Jewish person, he lived in their system. You remember Philippians 3 where it says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I do. That's what Paul says. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was it. Until he met Jesus and realized that it still didn't change his heart, the law. And if you read verses 18 to 20, you can feel Paul's description of, of their perception of themselves, where, he's, where they're like, we have the law, we know what, 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 what God's will is, we're, we're a guide for the blind. And, and again, please hear me, possession of the law was certainly a genuine blessing and God's plan was to specifically use the Jewish people to be a blessing to the nations. I mean, that's what he's doing. That's his plan. That's what's happened. But the, but the dark side of all these blessings was pride. Tim Keller writes, they were proud of their nationality, proud of having and knowing the law, proud of being the chosen people, proud of knowing his will, proud of following God's law, becoming masters of it. But the sucker punch comes in verse 21. If you have a Bible, look at Verse 21. He says, well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourselves? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You tell others not to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You tell others, or you you condemn idolatry, but you use items stolen from pagan temples. Basically, he's saying, why don't you practice what you preach? You teach the law and the ways of God, but it, it must not have penetrated the way you live, it must not have penetrated your heart because even though you teach us those things, you steal, you commit adultery, you, you, yes, you condemn idolatry, but guess what? You, you have kind of purged different temples. You've taken the different items. You've, you've sold them. You've profited by them. And that's greed. And greed is idolatry. And so he's pointing out that all these things, whether you've done them or not, they can be sins of the heart, as we know Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so you're claiming and you're proud of all these things, but the reality is that your actions and your motives, they run contrary. And they have devastating effects. And it brings us to these, these key two verses, verses 23 and 24, where he says, you're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles, the watching world, blaspheme the name of God because of you. And I think this is two of the most sobering and convicting verses in our passage. That my actions as a professing Christian, if they don't line up with the way of Jesus or with the heart of God, they will influence those who do not know God to give up on him or even worse to curse him. If that's how a Christian lives, if that's how they live, then I don't want anything to do with their God. Or their God must not exist because I don't see any impact in their life. And all it does is give them more pride. And this is the opposite of how the Lord has commissioned us to live, to be his witnesses to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to live in such a way that people, when they see us, when they meet us, when they interact with us, they experience God. I was preparing this week and I was reminded of this this Brennan Manning quote that was placed in the middle of this DC Talk song when I was growing up. DC Talk is a great Christian band, look him up. Um, Anyway, um, it was a song, What If I Stumble, and there was this quote right in the middle of this song And it was here by Brendan Manning. says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And and again, so convicting, so sobering. And I think many of us in this room would go, amen. That's true. And some of you in this room go, that was my story. Maybe that's still my story. I'm still trying to figure out who Jesus is and kind of figure that out in relation to how I see Christians live. So the questions for us is, does your life reflect Jesus in the way it should? People might know that you claim to be a Christian. Does your life match your words? And I don't know about you, but for me, those words, they they should cause me to consider the impact that my lifestyle has with the spread of the gospel. And I think that... Sadly, we sometimes take it for granted. Anyway, I I do think that's a, a piece to this whole sermon that if you think about anything today, take that and go, Lord, would you use my life? Help me to demonstrate you. Paul gets to verse 25, though, and he begins to transition a little bit. And what he does is he centers the conversation on what I believe, he, what I would say is on what matters most. And he synthesizes the conversation in verses 25 to 27 to make clear that ultimately it is not about circumcision or ceremony, but it's about our obedience. And he begins to stretch the Jewish people's thinking. He begins to stretch our thinking about this idea of who are the, who are the people of God really? For years, There was confidence that was built up in the Jewish people because they were the people of God. And the Lord, they gave gave them the sign of circumcision and as a marker to as his people. And circumcision, if you remember, was the ceremony by which a male Jew was brought into the covenantal community. But over time, the marker of circumcision was believed to be a a marker safeguarding them from eternal judgment. And it became a source of pride and became a source of faulty thinking. And well, what Paul does, he challenges that here, and he centers the conversation back on what's truly important, that circumcision was merely a marker. It was merely an outward symbol of something that should have been true on their inside, on their heart. And Paul points them to what God is truly after. And you see that in verse 25 where he says, "'The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value "'only if you obey God's law, "'but if you don't obey God's law, "'you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile.'" And some of these statements would have been radical to hear if you were a Jewish person. Because Paul, what he's doing, he's starting to open up the lines. He's starting to reframe the idea of what it meant to be the people of God. That the people of God were any who obeyed the law. That the people of God were any who were marked by his heart and his ways. And that was radical. Now lean in here for a second because I want you to catch the point. But I also want to set us up for something larger. Paul is saying in these three verses, he's saying this. He's saying ceremony, circumcision, religiosity, it matters very little. What matters is obedience. Obedience to the law and it is obedience that indicates who the people of God are. Now, I think, we'll, I think we get it. I mean, if I were to give you this kind of extreme scenario illustration, if I were to say, hey, well, what would you rather have? A wife who is faithful, but, but never really wears a wedding ring. <laughs> or a, a wife who is very, very good at wearing her wedding ring, but is unfaithful. Well, obviously we would be going, well, of course, the faithfulness. And I think that's, again, a simple kind of, kind of whatever illustration. I'm just going, the people missed what was most important. Like, yeah, you have a marker, you have a sign, you have an external thing, but you're missing the heartbeat. What God is calling his people to is to obe- obedience, to live out the law. But here's the larger picture. Here's the larger setup. No one fully obeys the law. So how can anyone truly be the people of God? And that's where we need someone greater than us to save us. That only someone not marred by sin can save us. Only someone that can fulfill the law perfectly can save us. Only somebody that can satisfy the wrath of God To to take that wrath off us and to forgive us can save us. We need someone supernatural to change us from the inside in ways that we are incapable of. And this sets up the last two verses, verses 28 and 29, where Paul is moving this whole passage and where he clarifies for us authentic conversion. What is the heart of salvation? And verse 28 is one of the clearest verses on what does not save us. And if you look at verse 28, it says, for you are not a true Jew, or he's he's identifying salvation, what a true people of God. You're not a true Jew because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. It's not through your parents or something, it's not through something you've done or achieved. So if you think that you are the true people of God because your parents are, or because you went to a Christian school or because you were baptized or you're you're a church member, well, then you're missing the core aspect of the gospel and you're not quite grasping the bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners and we we all of us cannot save ourselves. Douglas Moo, he writes, Paul's main purpose in this section is to not indicate how circumcision is of value with respect to the covenant, But his main point is to remove circumcision from the list of those things that the Jew might think would afford him an automatic pardon from the wrath of God. And what this quote gets me thinking about is it gets me thinking about the lists that our society, that our churches, that our own hearts create, that we begin to think that those earn us extra points or extra favor or extra weight on the scales of our eternal merit. And I don't know what the, the list would be on your in your world, but man, you think about church attendance, good works, I give tithe, I... I'm a, I do good things. I serve a lot. I volunteer. I was baptized. I mean, the list can go on and on. And honestly, what this is doing is saying no. Those things don't save us. And the fatal weakness of moralism is that it cannot, it cannot protect or prevent the heart from sinning. It can't reach into our hearts and change us. So what is the key? Verse 29. A true Jew or true salvation, authentic conversion, a true Christian is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it's a change of heart produced by the spirit and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. It's about a heart right with God something must happen to your heart. But this change of heart, it's a supernatural work of God. It, it's, the circumcision of heart requires a kind of surgery beyond our capabilities, what Warren Wiersbe says. That's why it's described as a change of heart produced by the spirit. It's a supernatural operation. It's a supernatural work. Listen, transformation must happen from the inside or it must happen on the inside. That we can't change the inside from the outside. And we need someone outside of us who can reach in and do it. Because the only way is if someone can change our heart and make it right with him. Now you might be thinking, you might be sitting here, well that's what I want, that's, that is it, that's, that's exactly what I need. But how do I do that? Because if it can't come from me, if I can't earn it, if I don't deserve it, how do I get it? And that's exactly the posture that the Lord wants from all of us in this site. That's what Paul's doing. He's building the case to say, this is the landscape. It moves us to go, the only way is for you to turn to the Lord for your salvation, to trust in Jesus for your salvation, because it has to be a power from him. Salvation is the act of God making us new. Salvation comes only from God alone. And actually... Paul sets us up for that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Remember that verse, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is verse 17, actually, that it is accomplished from start to finish by faith, not by anything that you or I can do but by faith alone. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And what a gift. And it makes us go, God, that's so good. But the key in this passage is that the only way that we can be saved is if God changes our heart. If he makes us right with him, but we can only be made right with him if we trust in Christ's forgiveness By which he then gives us his righteousness, by which he accomplished and fulfilled. But it, but but it only can happen from him, and so that's the bottom line. The only way is the way of the heart. You know, I was thinking back to that prayer at the very beginning by the fair by the tax collector, where he says, "Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner." That's the posture. That's The reason why he walked away justified is because it moved him to go, I need you. I need you to change my heart. I need you through your spirit to make me new. And that's the beauty of this new covenant. That's the beauty of the gospel. Hey, today, just as I close, just want to give a couple application questions for you to think about. The first question is this. Is this, are you, am I, and this is for me too. Are you, am I relying on the things I have done or you have done or the work that Christ has done? The key verb is relying. Who are you relying on? And again, it's this idea of are, are you, am I, are we stuck in our goodness? And just, just, are we stuck in this idea of it's just my effort and I put trust in it. And maybe it's subconscious. Maybe I don't even think about it. But maybe I'm just comfortable. I'm just, it's just convenient. I can control it. I like it. I'm not, I'm just don't even really take that much time to think about. Think about my need. And if you're there, I would say, man, I would just say the prayer is like, God, would you prick my heart? Remind me how much I need you. Remind me how much I, I, need, to, I need to rely on your grace and your work and not my own because I don't want to be just comfortable. And so, God, would you get me out of being stuck? The second second application question is this, is that maybe, or do you struggle to believe that the good news can really be this good and true? So maybe you hear the good news and you go, but man, but my sin, my shame, the things I've done, God, do you really know who I've hurt? And maybe you struggle to believe that the good news really is this good, that the Lord says, if you trust in me, I'll forgive you. I'll give you life. And, and you, and it is that, that easy. And here's something unique this, this morning. If, you feel, if you're feeling st- stuck, or if you're feeling like you're struggling to believe the good news, during the response song that we're about to sing up here, we're going to have um, part of our prayer team kind of standing in the back today. The song that we're going to sing in response is about five, six minutes long. It's a great song. Or if you need prayer for anything. But I just wanted to put them back there to go, if, if during the song when everyone's standing, you want to slip back and just ask them to pray a prayer of help or blessing over you, go for it. We'd love to pray with you. Because sometimes, again, the heart of this, is we can't do this on our own. We need the Lord's help. And so if you need prayer today, just even during the response song, they're, they're in the back, they have a yellow lanyard. But hey, I want to challenge us all the only way is the way of the heart let's lean on him let's cling to him let's trust in him because we know that it's a disaster for me if i keep trusting in me hey would you pray with me lord jesus thank you for this morning thank you for the good news pray that you'd keep keep allowing us in so many different ways as we see in this this letter that you've inspired That God, we need you. That we need you to forgive us. We need your righteousness. We need your heart. So God, thank you for the gift of the gospel and the gift of Christ and the gift of new life. Help us never take it for granted and help renew in us a sense of joy and the sense of of the goodness of, of your grace that's given to us. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.